0: This evening I'm going to talk about Secular Ethics and this will be um, part of uh, three presentations, one on ethics, one on samadhi, meditation, collectiveness, concentration, and one on panya, wisdom or understanding. In other words, I want over this week to consider what are traditionally called the Three Trainings from a secular perspective. I'd like to dedicate this talk to Michael Stone, a friend and colleague of mine who tragically died this time last week, last Sunday, at the age of 42. Before looking into the matter of ethics itself, I think I need to say a few words about what I mean by secular. For me, a secular space, whether that's out there in the world or whether it's here on a retreat, is one that is not formally religious. It doesn't involve activities, rituals, uh, chanting and so forth that we associate with religion. It's not a space that assumes or requires anyone to hold any metaphysical beliefs either those of Buddhism or Christianity or any other religion. It is a space that is entirely and only concerned with the suffering of this world, of the life that has emerged through evolution on this planet. It's not concerned with Our actions, if we're thinking here ethically, it does not thinking of actions in terms of the results they might have after our death. It does not seek to explain our condition now by former deeds that we might have committed in a past life or which have been somehow willed upon us by a deity. And thirdly, A secular space is a space of tolerance. A secular space is one that does not discriminate against others on the basis of their beliefs, of their faith, of their ethnicity or gender. It's an open and a tolerant space. And this last point is something I learned from a recent book by the Dalai Lama called Beyond Religion, which might sound to be a somewhat strange title coming from a man who is the leading figure of a world religion. It's a very interesting book. And he was inspired by the Indian Constitution The Indian constitution that was established about 1948-49 was an explicitly secular constitution and by secular they meant precisely this namely that in a country with so many different and conflicting religious traditions the state needed to provide a safe, protected space in which these different communities could coexist without conflict and could live in a state of acceptance and respect for one another. And despite the conflicts, often the violence, that has beset India since independence, it has nonetheless been remarkably successful for a country of that size. And that population, and it's the Dalai Lama, in fact, who has been advocating the idea of a secular ethics. Those are his terms, not mine. The Dalai Lama doesn't advocate a secular Buddhism. He considers Buddhism to be a religion, and but he but he has argued in this book that the world is too small a place these days for any one religion, including Buddhism, to set, as it were, the moral agenda. We need to find a way to live together ethically, but to do so, we need to imagine another kind of ethic that is premised on tolerance. And that he calls a secular ethic. What I'm interested in um, this evening is to explore what such a secular ethic might look like in the context of Dharma practice. And I'm going to go back and retrace some of my own story here, and I'd like to begin with my own first encounter with the practice of mindfulness, or vipassana as it was called, that I learned from uh, Mr. Goenka, Satya Narayan Goenka. I did my first Goenka retreat in 1974, Um, I had just been ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist monk And this was a profoundly transformative experience. i would never encountered a form of meditation, anything like it, amongst what I've been doing with my Tibetan teachers. As many of you no doubt are aware, uh, Goenka advocates a form of Vipassana practice where you start the retreat by focusing on the breath, And after three days of doing that, you then turn your attention to the body, you start at the top of the head, and you go slowly down from the scalp, through the head itself, into the torso, through the limbs, to the tips of your toes, and then you return. And you do this hour upon hour upon hour during this retreat, so that you become intensely aware of the sensations and the feelings associated with those sensations that suffuse your body. And you cultivate mindfulness uh, precisely upon your embodied experience. You pay attention likewise to how this experience exhibits change, transformation, reverberation, vibration. You enter into the the flux and flow of your living body. You're also aware of how this process is one that is entirely impersonal. It has nothing particularly to do with me. It's simply what happens. And likewise, when we have been meditating today, that could well have been what we too noticed, that our experience happens to us. We don't choose To feel a certain way, we don't choose to feel certain emotions, or even certain thoughts. They happen. This does not mean that we do not exist. We are the experiencer. We are the one who undergoes these happenings. But we too are also something that just happens. Why? Well, that's not really our business on this retreat to ask. We want here to come back to the immediacy of our felt experience. And rather than speculate about what it means, what its origins are, where it's going, instead, this is a practice about coming to terms with in an immediate, way, what it is to be alive as a human person, conscious and aware in this moment, in this place. It's to come to rest in the immediacy of our somatic, affective, conscious being. Now, although this practice was entirely new to me, I was not unfamiliar with the idea of mindfulness. In fact, curiously, at the time in which um, I did this retreat with Goenka, I was studying a, an Indian Mahayana work called the, the Bodhichary Avatara, translated into English as A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, written by a monk called Shantideva. Now, Shantideva um, also gives mindfulness an absolutely central role in his understanding of Buddhist practice but in some ways it's quite different from the emphasis given to it by Goenka and by implication what we find in the other traditions of Vipassana practice today Shantideva considers mindfulness as first and foremost um, ethical. Mindfulness has to do with recollecting, with remembering what it is that you aspire to practice. What are your goals and purposes in life? What are the commitments that you have made to yourselves or to your community that you have promised to honour. That is is his primary sense of mindfulness. Mindfulness, the word itself, sati, um, means to remember. So it's it's to be mindful of what you have committed yourself to do. In this way, it's The word mindful, mindfulness, works very well as a translation. Um, For example, uh, we might say to ourselves or to someone else, be mindful of the fact that you're representing Gaia House, if I were to go to a meeting, for example. Or be mindful of the fact that you're a monk. Be mindful of the fact that you're married. Now we don't, of course consciously, moment to moment, keep repeating this to ourselves. It's implicit knowledge. We know it. We have a sense of the kind of person we aspire to be. And often I think when we observe an action that we regard as unacceptable, It's not so much our first instinct to condemn the actions wrong but to somehow not understand how someone could do that and certainly we cannot understand how we could ever do that. Simple example. When I walk round the country lanes of our village in France I often notice that there are Uh, The people have thrown litter out of cars, often in the form of beer cans. And um, I say to myself, how could someone do that? Before I think, oh, throwing beer cans out of cars is wrong. But how could someone do that? On the grounds that I could not imagine myself Throwing a beer can out of a car window into the countryside. I'm not the sort of person who does that. Now, we can extend that example in myriad ways in terms of our own life. And although it's a simple example, I think it illustrates quite well um, something about our primary ethical sense. I'm the kind of person who aspires to behave in this way. I'm the kind of person who wouldn't possibly do that. And if I were to do it, I would feel that I had somehow betrayed myself or compromised myself in a way that I'd find very difficult to live with. So for Deva, he has taken this vow of the Bodhisattva to become awakened for the sake of all beings. His whole project begins with his taking this vow. For the rest of his text, which is about 900 verses long, he struggles to find out ways in which he can live up to that ideal that he has set himself. Unlike many Indian Buddhist writers, he is surprisingly Uh, self-revelatory. He critiques himself. It's quite a personal account. He struggles with his own tendencies to act in ways that conflict, that contradict what he consciously seeks to become. So for him, mindfulness in its broadest sense is being mindful of what you aspire to be. If we were to do that, then this would have an effect on the ethical quality of our lives. He says, for example, if the elephant of my mind, elephant in Indian tradition (coughs) refers to a very powerful animal that can easily get out of control. A rutting elephant is a very common image of a powerful force that's gone berserk. If the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. So the purpose of mindfulness is not just to be more aware of the breath and the bodily sensations and the feelings, it means to be constantly mindful of one's commitments and goals. In another verse he says, the thieves of unawareness follow upon the decline of mindfulness and rob you of your goodness. He describes them as waiting for an opportunity to break in and take possession of your mind. Now this kind of poetic language, I find in many ways, speaks more powerfully about what we're doing than the sometimes rather dry and, and clinical, uh, or the very exact, accounts we get in Buddhist psychology. I suspect all of us can relate to the idea of sitting in meditation, uh, trying to remain focused on our breath or whatever other object we're training it on and constantly being interrupted. Constantly feeling that as soon as my guard is down, as soon as my attention drifts off or I start getting sleepy the next thing I know is that a fantasy or a a desire or a fear or anxiety has somehow broken in, and has somehow taken over my mind. And how difficult it is once that worry, let's say, or that obsessive thought, or that emotion has taken hold. It's not easy then to somehow let it go. It's 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 infiltrated. And often, for the rest of the sitting, we'll feel somehow um, uh, uncomfortable, somehow struggling uh, in the face of this uh, intruder. Is how it often feels like, in fact. So mindfulness then is a is a pays close attention to our feelings, our sensations, and then very importantly, the the arising of thoughts, the arising of, 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 of emotions and desires and fears. And it tries to catch them at their inception. As we become more attentive moment to moment, it gives us a far better platform, as it were, to catch the bubbling up, of ideas and plans and feelings right at the start rather than losing consciousness sometimes and then when we come to that emotional fantasy is in full flood. So Shantideva says, when on the verge of acting I see my mind is tainted I should remain immobile Like a piece of wood. And he repeats that phrase again and again and again. Remain like a piece of wood. Now, the piece of wood is a metaphor for equanimity, it's not an image of indifference. In other words, we're crucially aware of what's rising up in the mind. Maybe anger, might be lust. But that doesn't mean that we are indifferent to it, nor does it mean that we can sort of just ignore it and suppress it. It means to be absolutely present with the texture and the feel of that thought and that feeling and that emotion, however disturbing and potentially destructive it might be. So we notice, let's say, a thought of, meanness or sarcasm you know, bubbling up in the mind but we don't identify with them but nor do we reject them we just let it be we're as, it's as though we're just a piece of wood and if we have a piece of wood then a, a good person can walk by a bad person can walk by the wood is unaffected likewise This mindful attention is completely accepting and acknowledging whatever is happening. But because it is seeing what's going on with a stillness and a presence of mind it's thereby freed either from identification I am angry, I want this or from Aversion. This is wrong, I'm a good, virtuous Buddhist meditator, I shouldn't be feeling this. Go away, go away, go away. No, we don't do that either. This is our reality. This is the moment in our life where this is happening. We didn't choose it, necessarily. It's just happening. So this requires a radical acceptance, as is often said today, of basically who and what you are where nothing is unworthy of being the object of your attention. And in that sense, there's no such thing as a distraction. There's nothing that could potentially distract us that could could just as well be the object of our attention. In other words, we defuse the distracted thoughts and whatever that come up by turning them into objects of awareness. And at that point, we haven't destroyed them, we've just let them be. And this allows, over time, the cultivation of a non-reactive stance vis-à-vis our lives. And in this sense, it's this kind of non-reactive stance that also becomes the basis for our ethical life, the basis on which we make choices, the basis on which We consider, you know, what course of action to follow. We consider which impulses to honour and which to let go of. Now this perspective is spelled out very clearly by a 14th century Tibetan lama called Tommy Zangbo, (coughs) whose commentary on Shantideva's text was the one I studied. And he defines mindfulness as follows. He says, Mindfulness is the recollection of everything one has undertaken to let go of on the one hand and to realise on the other. So again, mindfulness is conscious of what it is we do not wish to inform us and form us, like anger, hatred, and so on. And is also conscious of what qualities that rise up are those we wish to develop further and to realize. (coughs) Because sometimes we respond quite spontaneously with kindness and generosity, intelligence. And they're precisely the things we seek to develop. But in Thalizamba and also in Shantideva and even in the Pali texts, we very often find mindfulness coupled with another term which I would translate as awareness. The term is sampajanya in Pali. It's sometimes translated as clear comprehension but basically translators don't really agree on what the English equivalent is. But let's call it awareness. And this becomes a compound, Dren She, in Tibetan, Sati Janya. And we could translate the compound as simply mindful awareness. And this awareness, for, 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 for Thomas Angle, is knowing how to let go of what we wish to let go of, and knowing how to realise those things we seek to cultivate. So this kind of awareness is a know-how. It's a skill. So mindfulness holds in mind what it is that we seek to achieve, what we seek to let go of, what kind of person we seek to become. But awareness is the know-how, the skill, that enables us to do that. You can't really separate the two. And I think often when we use the word mindfulness in a sort of a loose, generic way, we're probably implying both. Mindfulness as well as the awareness that is skilled in knowing how to live mindfully. Shantideva concludes his uh, chapter by saying that mindful awareness boils down to repeatedly examining one's mental and physical situation. So this is very much how we find mindfulness in Goinka or in the insight meditation tradition. It's a constant, careful, calm regard on what our body and mind are up to at any given moment, and this is very much a therapeutic process uh, that needs, in Shanti's Deva's words, to be bodily enacted. It's something that needs to be done with the body, the mind working together. It's not just a mental act, and it's therapeutic. It's a kind of healing. Shantideva asks, how can a sick man be healed just by reading a medical text? In other words, we have to know the theory, we have to understand what it is that we're doing, but the crucial thing is to do it and to learn how to do it well. So, what I, find, what I found during this period, where I was practicing Vipassana with Goenka and I was studying Shantideva with Tibetan lamas, is that these two dimensions of mindfulness came very much together. That the contemplative and ethical dimensions of the practice have always been inseparable for me. I can't really think of mindfulness outside of its role in my ethical life. So mindful awareness both embeds my attention in the raw immediacy of experience here and now, but it also serves as a compass that guides my response to that experience. It's both. It's it's the acute awareness of experience and at the same time an awareness of how I should respond to that, what I should do. In many ways, I would argue that the Dharma of the Buddha is ethics all the way down. And I'm thinking here of ethics as not equivalent to morality, not equivalent to following precepts, rules, laws of one's religion, of one's society. But ethics, as i said and as is clear from Deva, is the practice of becoming the kind of person you aspire to be. And we could extend that to the practice of realizing the kind of world you aspire to live in. Not just for yourself and and others who you know, but arguably also for those future generations who are not yet born. What kind of world do we want to leave at our death? What can we do to form a world in whatever way such that it conforms to the kind of world I would seek to leave uh, to those I love. That's ethics in the broadest sense. Now Buddhism, like all traditions, provides us with some images, some ideals, uh, that can help guide us on this path. The classical images are those of the Arhant, the liberated saint, the person who is no longer driven in their lives by greed or hatred or delusion, who dwells in a Nibbanic peace and clarity and is no longer disturbed by um, the eruptions of violent emotions and so on. Then we have the Bodhisattva, the person who aspires to continue engaging with the world to assuage the suffering of others, and puts off their own experience of quiet, tranquil, transcendent Nirvana. And another image would be the Buddha. The Buddha being very much an archetype or an archetypal form of human completion and wholeness in which wisdom and compassion are balanced and integrated. But in many of the Buddhist traditions, these figures are generally depicted in the form of monks or nuns, mainly monks as we know. But does the monk today stand as an adequate model of fulfilment in a secular age? I wonder if this model is ceasing to work in the Buddhist world the monk as we've inherited that image from Asia is still I think very much tied to the Indian ideal of the ascetic and the renunciant the monk is the person who's cut himself off from domesticity from money from anything much to do with business or society and this I think has served as a very uh, fine and uh, adequate model uh, for much of the history of Buddhism but as we find ourselves in an increasingly secular world and not only a secular world but a world in which as the Dalai Lama suggests we have to go beyond religions Then I feel that that image becomes increasingly marginal for many people. And I feel that we are seeking uh, other models, other archetypes that may guide our practice. I don't know what they are. I suspect all of us uh, nurture or have within us certain figures, maybe historical figures contemporary figures uh, that somehow stand for what we value most deeply we also have to think of ethics as not just one thing there are different ways of doing ethics and I don't have much time I'm not going to be able to go into any detail this evening But broadly speaking, I think ethics breaks down into two primary approaches. One is an ethics of justice. The other is an ethics of care. An ethics of justice we can also speak of as a legalistic ethic. And an ethics of care we might think of as a situational ethic. Let me try and explain the difference. A situational ethic is concerned with how we respond to the specific and unique demands of a situation at hand. It's concerned with responding to the actuality of a person or a group of people or animals actual suffering in a particular context. And from a situational point of view, every (coughs) serious ethical dilemma is unique. In other words, the conditions that create the context for this particular suffering have never happened quite in that way before and are unlikely to be repeated again in that way in the future. This is sometimes called moral particularism. But what it points to is that the very heartfelt sense when we're caught in an ethical dilemma um, that It is really a dilemma because we can't conceive of one simple answer that we can get from a book of rules or a religious text or a philosophical writing. It's too specific to be legislated for. So, for example, we might believe that killing is wrong. And we take a vow, I will not kill. And that is all well and good, and I would honour that myself. But we'll find ourselves endlessly in situations where that doesn't quite work. A good example is that of abortion. We could simply say, well, I'm a Buddhist, I think killing is wrong, abortion therefore, no way. It's murder. But that could be very cruel. That would not take into account the specific needs of that particular woman in that particular situation. It's much more difficult to act situationally because we don't have the reassurance of the Vinaya or the Ten Commandments or the Torah, or the Quran, that has given us the answer. We can't pass the buck to God or whoever wrote these texts. We're on our own and we're caught up with conflicts and uncertainties and we can never be sure that the decision we make might make things worse. We can't have that certainty. A situational ethic is an ethic of risk. A legalistic ethic, or an ethic of justice, tends to be based upon um, often a religious text, but something that stands outside the messiness of human history. It's very often believed to be underwritten by some divine vision, or God, or Moses, or Muhammad, or the Buddha, and laws are laid down, and all we have to do is apply them and not question them. And many people live this way. And it's, in some senses, relatively easier. We're let off the hook. We don't have to take risks. We can appeal, if we don't understand what to do ourselves, we appeal to the authority of a priest or a monk or a lawyer who can articulate what the right thing to do is. I'm very much of the persuasion that the kind of practice that we find advocated in the early Buddhist teachings very clearly also in Shantideva, in Mahayana Buddhism, inclines far more to being an ethic of care rather than an ethic of justice. That doesn't mean that justice is not part of the equation, it is. For people we care for, we want to be treated fairly and justly. But the point is that our primary ethical concern is to care for the specific suffering in the particular situation rather than, in the first instance, appeal to the authority of, let's say, the law of karma. Although it's common in all Buddhist traditions to think of ethics, morality, morality, They both can work here. In terms of um, things like accumulating merit, um, cleansing ourselves of bad karma, not doing certain actions because they will produce a negative result in a future life and so on. This is all an ethics of justice. And I feel that there is considerable evidence in the earliest texts that the Buddha in a way was moving against that trend we find um, in a very early Buddhist text what I think we can take as a sort of basis upon which to build an ethic of care and it reads as follows just as I am so are you. Just as you are, so am I. Comparing oneself with others, one should not kill or cause to kill. Now here we don't, we don't have a text that says you must not kill because if you kill that will create bad karma and you'll get punished in a future life. That's a whole different way of considering the reasons for your ethical behaviour. Quite explicitly, the basis for an ethic of care is the empathetic identification we have with the other person. Just as I am, so are you. Just as you are, so am I. This is a very explicit description of empathy. Though curiously, in Buddhist um, language, we don't have a word for empathy. But this is very clearly what is being talked about. In other words, we avoid causing others harm, or lying to them, or stealing from them because they are just like us and we know and feel in our bones that they are just like us. Shantideva takes this idea even further in his work. In our own Western tradition, this approach resonates very much with, for example, the work of Martin Buber in his distinction between relationships, which he calls I, thou relationships as opposed to I, it relationships. For Buber, um, ethics is grounded on our capacity to regard the other as you, not as it. In other words, you as someone who um, Is an end in your own right. You're not a means to my end. You're not there to serve me or serve my desires or my fears. This is very similar to this ethic of empathy. Whereas for much of our time, we do often diminish others to being instruments of our own need when we may deal with someone in a shop, for example, or in a business transaction, it's quite easy for the I-you rapport to deteriorate into a functional I-it. And I think this is increasingly easy once the person becomes physically invisible. We benefit from people in Bangladesh and the Philippines working in sweatshops for ridiculously little amounts of money so that we can wear our nice clothes and shirts and trousers. They've in a sense been reduced to it. We don't take them into account as people with equal values and needs and desires as ourselves. Now, I would suggest that a framework for this kind of situational ethic is encapsulated by the four tasks that I find a more helpful way of thinking about the four noble truths. Let's put the Four Noble Truths aside. The Four Noble Truths, I think, also frame the entirety of the practice, but the very language in which they are couched moves it more towards a theory, a theory of truth, which is often quite close to theories of justice. When we think of these four truths not as metaphysical propositions that we can accept or reject, but if we think of them as four tasks that we can perform, this shifts us quite naturally into a situational, caring kind of ethic. I'm not going to go into any detail here. But basically, these four tasks boil down to what can be summarized in the acronym ELSA, E L S A. Embrace suffering, life, but actually, it means embrace this life that's happening in this moment, both oneself those who are with one, all the way to the social, political, environmental condition of our time. The Buddha's injunction here is to know this fully, parinya, to know this fully, to embrace it. And that, I think, is the first step also in the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness starts by being able to say yes to the life we're experiencing now. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning. The next step is to let go. E-L. L means let go. Let go of your instinctive reactivity. And that reactivity here doesn't mean any reaction. It refers primarily to those repetitive, compulsive reactions such as attachment and greed, hatred and fear, confusion and egoism. These things which we would now understand to be the products of our own evolution that have served us or our ancestors' great survival advantages are so embedded in us that they're at work even though they may no longer be particularly useful in many ways. They get in the way. They block us. They hinder us from flourishing fully as persons. So the second of the tasks is to let go of that reality. But again, letting go implies no agency. It's just like Shantideva's be like a piece of wood. You let these things be. You don't buy into them and you don't try and reject them either. You just let them play themselves out. You let them rise and you watch them hang around a bit and then fade away the third task is to see the stopping of those reactive moments in other words when they come to rest to consciously enjoy and valorize the moments of peace of clarity that is possible when the mind is no longer in a state of turmoil or confusion. And those moments are moments of nirvana. And this, I think, is what nirvana means as a felt sense, as something immediate, something uh, clearly visible, the Buddha says. Nirvana is clearly visible. In other words, it's there each time we come to rest in a non-reactive attention. And even in the midst of reactivity, we can be aware of that in a non-reactive way. So it doesn't mean reactivity vanishes forever. Even in the presence Of turmoil, there is a part of ourselves that can see the turmoil, that can be attentive to the turmoil without being turbulent. And this is again what we cultivate in the cultivation of mindful awareness a a non turbulent awareness of whatever's going on. And that too is not the end of the story. The fourth phase or task is then to actualize a way of life, what the Buddhists call the eightfold path. And this is where we move from reactivity to responsiveness. The aim of the process, the aim of this this path is to respond to the situation at hand in a way that's not conditioned or driven by our reactive habits of mind. So in other words, the goal of this practice is the path itself. It's the way of life itself that more and more stems from this nirvanic, non-reactive awareness that taps into our human resources of generosity, of kindness, of wisdom, compassion, and lives from that space rather than the reactive one. Thank you for listening.